You're about to listen to the Ivy League diplomat who murdered his family, part two. It picks up where part one left off. It was the spring of 1976. A well-established diplomat, William Bradford Bishop Jr., had just murdered his wife, his mother, and his three young sons, and was nowhere to be found. Once he walked away from the, the station wagon, he vanished. Again, police want to talk to Mr. Bishop. From Italy to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, the search for Bishop stretches continents. He potentially could be in a cabin up in somewhere as a recluse with a beard, because I don't discount anything. But it's very possible the man accused of killing his entire family is right here in East Tennessee. I'm Leslie Ackerson. And I'm John North, and this is Appalachian Unsolved, the podcast. If you're a man who has just murdered his entire family, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park might be a perfect place to disappear, and it appears that that might have been William Bradford Bishop Jr.'s plan. It's obvious now in retrospect, Leslie, that this was going to be his ultimate destination. He had murdered them. He had dumped their bodies in North Carolina in a remote part of um, a county that was very un unpopulated, and that this was ultimately where he was going to go. He clearly must have had this on his mind. And our story picks up towards the end of March, about 17 days after he bludgeoned his family, burned their bodies, and all of that was discovered in that pit in North Carolina. The house has been checked, and now the Bishop family station wagon is spotted at the Jakes Creek Trailhead at Elkmont Campground, which is up in the Smokies. Yeah, for folks who haven't been to the Smokies, it's probably worth kind of setting the stage a little bit. Elkmont was an old kind of resort area, private living area that primarily rich people had lived in for generations. They built their own cabins in Elkmont. If you can imagine a little neighborhood or village of cabins, it just so happened that there were just a few people still living in Elkmont. It was a rarity. And one of them was a man named Roy Owenby, who lived there because he was looking after an elderly relative. And he'd had his eye on this station wagon for several days. He had seen it there for several days because he lived steps away. 74 Chevrolet station wagon. And he thought maybe it was a backpacker, you know, because they would leave a copy of their backpacking permit on the dash where the ranger could view it, you know. That's Dwight McCarter. At the time, he was working with Roy as a ranger for the park. And he looked in and he saw a gun and everything else. From the outside, the car looked fine. Then they decided to run the plates. It was uh, sort of like the switchboard lighting up, I think, Leslie. Because by that point, uh, Bishop had committed the murder several weeks beforehand and he was becoming very well known. The FBI was looking for him, hadn't had any sign of him, hadn't seen or heard of him, and suddenly they get this call about this license plate on this station wagon, and it's his vehicle. It was maroon in color, pretty beaten up inside. There were dog treats on the floor. There were bloody blankets, tarps in the very back of the car. This is the vehicle 
that he didn't only just drive to the Smokies Inn, it carried the bodies in the back all the way from Maryland to North Carolina. If you just visualize the, the horrendous nature of, of driving six to eight hours in the back of the car with bloody bodies that are wrapped up. This car was in the interior, not a nice place. It was pretty bad and by then would have been smelling pretty bad. Even though he had already disposed of the bodies, you're basically talking about a death vehicle. They also found a number of interesting items in there as well. Hygiene uh, pieces, as I recall, dog treats, because of course he had the family dog with him, Leo, while he decided he'd murder his five family members, his three sons, his wife, and his mother. For whatever reason, he had decided he wasn't gonna kill Leo, a golden retriever. So by the next day, March the 19th of 1976, they're ready to sort of go full force at it. They shut off the area so nobody could get in there. And then it turned into a rather large search here. Just people squeezed in everywhere. There was search by air, there was search by ground. The search went on for days. And as we know from the history of past disappearances of people in the park, Leslie, they have in the past botched searches. And it was very clear when they did this one in March of 76, they were determined to do it right. Teams of rangers, FBI agents on foot, in the air, the bloodhound. Now the bloodhound, some of the tracking dogs they use, did pick up some scents. And one of the interesting things was a dog picked up a scent near the visitor center, which we later learned Bishop did visit. It's where you can get oriented and sort of understand here are the main key places that you can visit in the park. And they found that he indeed had been there, and as you said, the dog hit on it. He showed up at the Sugarland Visitor Center. One of our uh, regular fellows that's uh, standing behind the desk, he was handing out these free maps of the park. He didn't know that the bishop was wanted at that time, uh, but Bishop come up and he's handing out this to one fellow and he says, can I have one too? And he uh, mentioned to the guy that he had a, uh, a really enjoyable time a couple of years back with his family here at Elkmont, and he would like uh, directions to how to get there. This is one of the aspects of the case, I don't know about you, that I have always wondered about, and we just have limited information from it. We've got some records that we obtained from the Park Service, which suggest that uh, he had uh, camped with the family at some point, but we don't really have a whole lot to go on. It would make sense because he was such a big outdoorsman that the Smokies would have appealed to him and would have appealed to his family that they would have gone there. But we just don't have a lot. But you have to assume, yes, they had been there before and he remembered it. Closer in to the scene where he had left the station wagon, the dog hit on the entrance to the cabin and the back of the cabin. It's been my experience based on research and what have you interviews that the dogs, they know what they're doing. And this dog hit on what's called the Allen cabin, not far from where the, the station wagon was left. But then they let the dog inside and the dog showed no interest. What you draw from that is that clearly Bishop had at some point, probably after leaving the station wagon, gone to the front and then maybe around to the back decided he wasn't going to go any further with the ha wasn't going to do anything else with the cabin and so moved on. 
The FBI wanted, to, wanted us to crawl in under the cabins, uh, on top of them, in the loft, check every cubby hole. And that's where Dwight McCarter and the other rangers came in again. Dwight isn't your average park ranger. He's probably in his 70s now. He has helped find a number of missing children, adults. He's a very colorful man to know. He's retired now, but back in the late 60s, early 70s, that's when he would have gotten his start in the park. He's, uh, I think he told us once, wasn't he at least part Cherokee? I think that sticks out in my mind. And he was a man who had grown up. He knew the park well. He knew the trails. He's kind of a man of the mountains. The park sent people on up the Appalachian Trail where they could drive to Hot Springs or drive to another location. They interviewed the backpackers or they left notes for them, you know. If you saw any footprints that were out of, out of kill or you saw any man, this man, and they had these posters showing Mr. Bishop, you know. They were wanted posters that were actually tacked up to trees on the trails. But some hikers did find some interesting prints in the ground that you wouldn't typically see on a trail. They picked up these wingtip dress shoes and they thought that rather odd. Now there was no dog tracks. These, we asked them, were they dog tracks? No. So these backpackers uh, hiking the Appalachian Trail saw these wingtip smooth soles in the mud. We don't know that it was Bishop, but you don't see people walking in wingtip dress shoes because they're slick. You step on the leaves or you step on the snow and you're going to slide and bust your rear end every time. We don't know if they were bishops or not, but obviously it's safe to say that it would have been very out of place for a man to be wearing a pair of wingtip shoes in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. That's not your best apparel when you're walking through the trails. So the suggestion would then obviously be that maybe Brad Bishop, a man of some means or stature once upon a time in society, could have conceivably been wearing those shoes, driven all the way down from Maryland in them, and maybe was walking around in them. Days of searching, all those efforts, they never found him. They never found a body either. Now, we mentioned that he's an avid doorsman. For most people, walking into the Smokies with no plan would kind of be a death sentence. It is a death sentence for some people. We know of people who wander away, get lost, and are maybe only a half mile or a quarter mile from the trail that they wandered off from, and they end up never being found and sadly dying. So yeah, it was either a crazy thing that he was doing or it was a very calculated thing in that he had a good sense in a park of 520,000 acres that he could escape. For those people who don't know how difficult a terrain that is, especially back in the 70s, you would have had to be a survivalist to survive for an extended period of time. And remember, for a good three to four days, the search that was going on was deep into that area by air and by ground. So for him to have somehow hid during that period of time, things would not add up to say that he could have hidden in that area. By March 26, all the searches were called off. 
If Bishop was still in the Smokies, nobody had found any evidence to support that. So they had to start looking at some other avenues. If he wasn't there, where would he likely have gone? We trained him. We trained him to be as smart and tactical and strategic as, as he was. So, you know, he had an extensive military background in, in, in intelligence gathering. It, it makes sense if you look at his career and all the places that he had worked where he'd been assigned with the Foreign Service that if you're Brad Bishop, are you going to stay in the South? Are you going to stay in East Tennessee? Logically, you might say no. The leads that we have received over the years have all led us to where he was comfortable in, in Europe and in Northern Africa. That's where his base was. That's where he spent multiple years uh, when he was at different embassies in, in the State Department. And remember, this is the 70s. If you wanted to fly internationally, if you wanted to go somewhere, security was way different than it is today. People don't realize this now because we're so used to TSA and all of the scrutiny that you have to face. But once upon a time, getting on an airplane was as simple as walking through kind of a, a small framed uh, metal detector that was actually not very efficient and would often not detect anything. And it was a lot easier back then to work with travel documents. He would have known how to alter travel documents. He worked for the State Department. Part of his duties and responsibilities involving passports and issuing passports, how far in advance he had this planned, he could have been able to create a passport under a different name. Uh, you know, there, there was no doubt that, that he could have done that. So the FBI, the sheriff's office, they went back and they looked through all these records of ticketed passengers on any type of vessel possible, but the records weren't that good back then either. They really couldn't find anything and their search kind of died off. And through the four decades that we are into now, sightings have been all over. It's interesting to me that, that we've got a handful, I think, it's fair to say, at least out of Europe, that, that are tantalizing. They, you look at them and you go, well, yeah, you know, it's possible that could have been him because the people doing the reporting about it were people who knew him. I think, what, there was a neighbor? They were on a train trip and they passed through Basel and as they looked across to the other train on the opposite side, the trains just happened to line up theirs with the uh, opposite side train. And they, the man and the woman both said they looked over and they saw, they swear they saw Brad Bishop, that they recognized that face, that they would have recognized it because he'd been their neighbor. They knew the family, he knew them, but like that, the trains were gone. And supposedly, European authorities went back, Swiss authorities went back after that when the neighbors reported it and searched the platform, went several days thinking, let's check the trains that would have passed through at this time, nothing. And then there was also, he had a co-worker who also thought, swore that he recognized him, I think, in a bathroom in Italy, in Sorrento. He even said to him, aren't you Brad Bishop? And his recollection is that the man looked at him and said, sort of in surprise, oh no, and then ran. 
And Sheriff Darren Popkin with Montgomery County, who we introduced in the first part, who continues to work on this case today, said that Brad Bishop is still on red alert on the Interpol system to this day. If he were ever to try to get out of the country, it's not like his name has, has fallen off this list because so many years have passed. He is still very much sought after. We have all of the international databases now with his DNA profile, with also with, with photographs, with fingerprints. So if he ever did try to come and go, you know, in and out of the United States, he'd never make it in and out. All of those sightings were years ago. But clearly, the search for Bishop has never stopped. In an effort to push the case again, Bishop was put back on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list a few years ago. But you have to think. All right, 94 was the last credible sighting. He committed these back in 76. Bishop would have aged considerably. And we needed to know, what did he look like now? It's interesting what they're able to do these days to sort of go back and reconstruct, kind of determine what an age progression might look like on somebody. Listeners may be familiar with the case of John List, who coincidentally murdered his family as well in the early 70s and then disappeared after leaving their bodies in the house. One of the things that led, that helped lead to John List's capture was they did a recreation of what John List might have looked like decades later, and it was recognizable. And when they finally did capture John List, he looked a lot like what the artist had come up with. And so that's what the FBI turned around and did. You and I have seen pictures and uh, of what they came up with with Bishop. It's kind of haunting to see what he might uh, be like 40-some years later. Today, the FBI and Montgomery County authorities unveiled a new forensic bust of Bishop. This is what the FBI believes William Brad Bishop looks like today, egotistical, self-assured, short-tempered. This, this is the artist's rendering. It's a nationally uh, well-known artist who took the information that we had provided based on pictures from years ago, from his life, and this is kind of where she believes that he would look now. Popkin also mentioned that the artist even kind of weaved in his personality when she made the face. The artist believed that, that there would be deception, but he was an intelligent man. And If you look at the pictures and sort of how they progressed it, they enhanced it in the late 80s, and then a decade later, you see kind of the face gets a little bit more kind of sunken in, and there's almost more of what appears to be sort of a scowl. The lines get deeper in his face. The hairline thins out a little bit. He was not bald, uh, according to the reconstruction. If you can imagine a man with a bit of a receding hairline, but by now, black or dark hair going white. Through the years, as they have put back out these enhancements, they've got more tips. They haven't been credible tips, but a lot of different ones that investigators have followed up on. They've been to Minnesota, Texas, to check these out where they thought they had him. We've been to many places in this country where, where we have uh, really narrowed down and, and thought it to be Mr. Bishop based on, on, on information that we had received, photographs. One not too long ago was in Texas. It was so incredibly close through so many different means. It turned out we had to exclude him by fingerprints and it clearly was not him at the end of the day. Uh, Bishop had surgery 
for a disc problem. He has a scar on his back. This guy did not have a scar on his back. He had not had surgery on his back. It was not his fingerprints. It was not his DNA. So we were able to exclude him. However, when we did interrogate him, he, he gave up every crime he has ever committed. And we did close a number of uh, cases in Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina that this guy was involved in, including in several arson cases, but it was not our Mr. Bishop. And we had a similar finding up in Minnesota in a very uh, rural area of Moose Lake, Minnesota. This guy was a recluse living in a kind of a cabin. Uh, no one knew who he was. We went up there. It was in the coldest of the wintertime. And again, it was not our bishop, but we did close out some cases for uh, Minnesota as well. They have met interesting people who sure on their face sounded pretty convincing, like, yeah, that might be Brad Bishop, that kind of that old coot holed up in the cabin, but then they go and they talk to him and they learn, no, that's not him. They even went to the extreme of digging up a body. At the Cedar Hill Cemetery in Scottsboro, Alabama, workers dug up the body of an unidentified man buried here. This John Doe had been hit by a car in 1981 and killed instantly. The local paper published John Doe's photograph. And I had noticed the John Doe picture in the Daily Sentinel, and the, and the picture just stuck in my mind. Soon after, Jeremy Collins was watching a television program featuring the William Bradford Bishop case. And I told my wife, I said, you know, that really looks a whole lot like the guy that was in the Daily Sentinel. Workers dug up the body in this grave at the Cedar Hill Cemetery. The FBI lab in Quantico, Virginia, will analyze his fingerprints, DNA, and dental remains collected here. Leslie, back in 2014, everybody thought they really had a very strong lead on finally we're going to find Brad Bishop's remains. They dug it up and opened the coffin, and it looked a lot like what you would assume Brad Bishop would look like. But when they did DNA testing, they found out, no, it was not him. That was back in 2014. That's the most recent thing that has happened. DNA was used in that. And over the years, improved DNA has helped link dozens of cases, some popular ones in the media that we hear about. Um, the one in California, the Golden State Killer. We've heard about Samuel Little in Texas. These are old cases just like this one that are getting justice now. What's helpful is that some of the physical evidence in this crime is still around if they needed to do DNA testing, the gas can, the shovel, that's still in storage if they needed to pull it out. But one thing they don't have anymore is that car. The station wagon, in retrospect, looking back 40 years, they would have kept that station wagon for a lot longer than they did. They, they wouldn't have let loose of that station wagon, but things were different. They handled investigations different. They didn't, you know, they didn't know that maybe someday they would have DNA that they could process that would link so quickly uh, suspects to crimes. So the station wagon, which was such a profoundly important piece of evidence found at Elkmont in March of 1976, after a while, they let it go. And actually, it's kind of odd what happened to it. A park ranger ended up buying it in October of 1976. He bought it from the estate of Annette Bishop, who was, uh, that was Brad Bishop's wife, and so the estate legally was considered to be the owner of the house and of that vehicle. 
and the estate willingly sold that station wagon, which had carried five dead bodies, to this ranger. I remember calling him up. He's still around. I remember calling him up because he, he helped Dwight with the search, and I said, so, yeah, you know, some people might be a little bit uncomfortable driving a vehicle like that considering how notorious it was. What do you think? And he said, oh, I never really thought anything about it. He said, they cleaned it up pretty good. I drove it for a couple years, and then I didn't need it anymore. Even though four decades have passed, time does move on. A lot of neighbors and people in that community remember what happened, but a lot of people don't. The house is still in a, a family neighborhood. New people live there. You can say a lot of the world has essentially moved on. Time has passed. That house is now occupied by somebody else. Neighbors are gone. Other family members are gone. This is it. And there's no more trace of him or his family on that tree-lined street in Bethesda, Maryland, where they lived. And this is 40 years later, so a lot of people who were involved in that are getting up in age. The park ranger who found the bodies in the shallow grave in North Carolina is still alive. He was the one who saw those, all those people on fire burning in that shallow grave. And he told us this haunts him. One person who still remembers and is convinced he's dead is Dwight. I think he finally realized what he'd done, and he came here and he couldn't get no peace. You know, Dwight never found Bishop, but he did find something when he was searching days after, and that is what kind of convinces him that Bishop had some remorse and ended up dying in the Smokies. He's convinced that Bishop buried Leo not far in the park from where he left the station wagon. He's convinced that Bishop loved that dog so much that he wanted as a final tribute to do something to mark where Leo's grave was. The rocks were piled up in about a three foot long area and there was a cross on the grave and I had never seen that before. And that cross, the rocks, the little grave appeared not long after their search had ended. So it matched up with timing I hiked up there with him in the snow. He can still find the spot. I mean, it's overgrown and the rocks have fallen down. But Dwight does have photographs that he took in 76 when he first went there. And he never felt it was right for him to unbury that or look deeper into it. But he said he'd never seen anything like that before. No testing's been done. And I think he said, nobody's ever dug up that grave. So we don't really know what's there. It's just Dwight came across it. It's in the middle of woods in the park. It's not in a common area. It's not near a trail. And he, he thinks that's one piece of evidence of Bishop. You know, unless somebody, unless Dwight leads them to it, and unless somebody takes the time to dig it up and find out, we're just not going to know. It's, it's interesting. It's intriguing. Even though this case is almost 44 years old, it's not like it hasn't been covered before. It's been heavily covered. It just hasn't led to that key break. I know the Washington Post has reported about it extensively. It's, you may have seen it on the NBC's Today Show. CNN has done stories about it. And Fox TV's America's Most Wanted has done it as well. And as we mentioned, it was for a while, the FBI featured it as one of their top 10 most wanted men. 
although that's now, it's now off the list. In the nearly 40 years that he has been one of America's most wanted, there have been countless sightings of William Bradford Bishop all over the world, but that's all they were, sightings. I don't know about you, Leslie, but I don't know where he is. In some cases that we report on, I have a good idea, or I, my, my gut tells me where he is. I have no idea. For, for all we know, his bones uh, have disintegrated into the ground in the Great Smoky Mountains, maybe, who knows, 100 yards, 200 yards, 300 yards away from Elkmont, and he just never was found. That's entirely possible. And we may never find his remains, because as Dwight McCarter told us, once the remains of somebody go down into the ground, because you are surrounded by forest and it rains and there's movement of the soil, things quickly become overgrown and you lose track of them. So arguably, if he's really, if his remains are still there, they're probably two or three feet covered and will not find them. The other possibility is, the one that's kind of romantic or appealing, to me anyway, is that he's still somewhere hanging out in Europe, an 83-year-old man, a smart man, hopefully a haunted man, and definitely a wanted man. At this point, nobody can say for sure if he's alive, if he's dead, and Montgomery County investigators are just gonna assume that he's still alive and he's still out there. And they continue to search for his whereabouts. They can't share with us all their methods. If they have had sightings, they haven't checked out, but they're still looking. They're still looking. I think they still believe. And I think every once in a while they still get tips and maybe this podcast will help give them some more. But let's face it, if Brad Bishop is alive, he's 83 years old. He was born in August of 1936. He's an old man. It's possible that he is, if he's taken care of himself, having lived on the run now more than 40 years, he could still be alive somewhere out there. He potentially could be in a cabin up in somewhere as a recluse with a beard, because I don't discount anything. I have no reason to believe that he is deceased. He is getting up in age. How someone could have lived a long and healthy life after killing their entire family would not really be logical. A lot of the evidence and the time can make a case like this feel hopeless. But Sheriff Darren Popkin, he is one person that continues to search for anything that might bring this man to justice. It is still something that is deep in his heart and he's gonna work on it as long as he can. Sheriff Popkin remembers this case because he was a boy when it happened. And if you can imagine being a, a, a boy, maybe a young teen, who has this horrendous thing happen in your community and it makes a huge impression on you, and then you go into a career in law enforcement, you investigate it as part of what your agency does, and then you become the boss and you make it one of your life's goals to solve this case. That's who he is. That's what's on his mind. And he gets up every day, I think, and thinks about, I want to solve this case. I owe it, and my office owes it to this community that we live in, that until we have some definitive proof that he's either dead or that you know we've exhausted everything we possibly can, or he just gets too old to actually be alive, you know, we will continue 
to follow up. There's nothing more that I would want to do before my career ends is to come up with some ending to this really horrific story. Unfortunately, his victims don't have a voice and really the only voice left is, is us looking for him. If you have any information about the whereabouts of William Bradford Bishop Jr., you have several options to relay that. The FBI has a national number, 800-CALL-FBI, that you can use. You can also call your local FBI office, and if you live out of the country, contact your local consulate. Authorities welcome any information. They say that no tip is too small.